Welcome to the Men on Purpose podcast, featuring dynamic conversations with emerging and established visionary men on purpose. Thanks for joining us today as we celebrate the men on purpose who are committed, creative, courageous change makers, living their best, most fulfilling life possible. Now, here's the host of Men on Purpose, Ian Lobos. All right, Greg, welcome to the Men on Purpose podcast, my friend. Thank you. I'm glad, glad to uh, finally get on. <laughs> yeah, man, this has been, uh, this has been, it's so cool when, when, like I was telling you earlier, it's so cool when I have high level people on that not in, it's not just money, it's high level mindset to get to a certain point and, and, and place in your career or in your life that the average person cannot push themselves through. So today we're going to be talking to Greg about like what it takes for a, a driver, a professional driver, a NASCAR driver. I mean, one of the biggest, if not the biggest sports in the world. And like to get to that elite level, to be a, a, a driver in one of those cars is uh, it's pretty extraordinary. And for those of you that don't know, Greg, you're about to get find out. And for those of you that, that don't understand NASCAR or think it's as simple as rolling around in a circle, you're going to learn some stuff today. And we're going to learn about mindset and discipline and, and, and holding yourself accountable and controlling ego and all that, all that wonderful stuff from a dude who's reached a pinnacle in a, in a, in a very, very, very uh, tough sport. So let's get rolling, man. I want to, I want to start, I want to start with like, like you growing up and did you always have this drive to, um, you know, not pun intended. Like, do you always have this drive to be something great? Well, I, I wouldn't say I had the drive to, you know, be famous or be, you know, uh, race car driver, what, whatnot. But I will say that I drove or rode anything that burnt gas or had wheels. Like I, I was just all about my motorcycle. I loved to drive. My parents had a little steel fab shop. I, I was like lived to drive the forklift, moved the truck in and out of the shop. And I'm talking when I was eight, 10, 12 years old. Um, and, and I begged my dad for a go-kart literally like every day. And I, for the life of me, don't know why he didn't finally break down just to have me shut up because I re remember <laughs> just wearing him out about wanting a go-kart, but we lived out kind of in the country and we, we had eight acres and I had a, backed up the Bureau of Land Management that had, you know, thousands of acres. So a motorcycle was really the thing. If I had a go-kart, I really didn't have any place to ride it, you know? So uh, I grew up in the Northwest where NASCAR racing is not that relevant. Right. But I just grew up loving cars and, 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 you know, anything that, you know, and I'm a competitive, you know, was competitive person by nature. Is there something that made you competitive or was it just like, you just, you just were like that. You were born like that. I, I, I don't know if, a, you know, I often wonder that if people are born with that 
um, competitiveness or not. I'm much more competitive than, than my brother is, but I, I played baseball. I wrestled, played basketball when I was in, you know, junior high and, and I was very aggressive and enjoyed the sports and, and, you know, was, was ultra competitive. always wanted to, you know, win or try and be the best. And that's, that's the American way, right? I mean, we're not handed things and you have to work hard for it. And, and uh, so I've, I've been, you know, a competitive person and, you know, I think the sports probably, uh, you know, did a lot of that for me being, you know, competitive. You know, I've talked to some other uh, professional athletes on this show and, a lot of time they said it, they were, they, they, their, their competitive nature was fueled because they got love and attention when they got, when they won. I know like myself personally, when I, I was a, I was a, um, I was a big swimmer when I was younger and even something like that, just even though it's so simple, I remember when my, when, when I won, my parents were different. They were a little more elated. They were a little more, um, you know, not loving because they were always loving, but they were, there was just a little higher level of, of pride. And, and, and then I started to reach for that. And it's interesting that you're, you're describing sort of like the same thing. A lot of people have that. Yes. And, and, and you're exactly right. And that's, you know, and I think that, and I want to jump all over the, the, the place, but it comes to mind that that's why people look, you know, are, are so competitive and they often, they'll often say, Oh, well, he's just a sore loser. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's got a bad attitude. Just, just get over it. It's just a race or, or it's just a game. Right. And for, for the professional athlete, for the driver or whatnot, it's not just a race. It's, it's your livelihood. Right. It's, your career. And a lot of times it's how you make a living. It's how you make money. So it's not only that you've, you've trained and you've practiced and you've tried to get ready for this uh, particular race. And now that you, you know, there's more races obviously, but each one is that is so important. And one thing that, that I tell people too, that, you know, want to complain or argue about, you know, or throw stones that, someone that's a sore loser or whatnot, as I say, look, we race 36 times a year, 36 times a year. So put it in perspective. Let's say you went to work (laughs) only 36 days in a year. Okay. And one day you show up and the building's locked. Well, that's a significant, but, but you train at home or you, you do whatever you do to get ready for that. You know, you're not just sitting at home and only working one day. You're working all those days, but you only get graded. That's a better way to put it. Yeah, you only different. get graded on your job on that day, you know, and potentially that day, you know, guy took you out, you wrecked, blew a tire, engine blew up. I mean, anything can happen. And, and by the way, it can happen two weeks in a row or three or worse. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, and you're, 
<laughs> you know, so it can compound very quickly. It's interesting. I, I want to dig into that a little bit more. So there's, I have a bunch of questions around like you getting started, but since you brought that up, what do you, you know, what do you do in that situation when you are, like, I want to get into stuff like visualizing and, and, and way you prep for race, like when you were in NASCAR, which you're still, you're still doing some stuff there. So like, but I mean like in the, in the, in the peak, you know, of your career, but like, what is that like to prep yourself and the team and, and everybody around you and the promoters and the fans. And then all of a sudden, you know, like we were talking about earlier, like, you know, you get taken out in, in lap two and you, you just prepped for so long for that. And that's just one of your 36, absolutely. You, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, it, it is a tremendous amount of work for a lot of people that don't know, you know, the NASCAR schedule, obviously, you know, they go, oh, they race on Sundays, you know, and we, we, you know, practice and we have appearances and we have team meetings and we have a post meeting and a pre meeting. Uh, you're, you're at the shop, you have to fit the seat in all the cars, all the cars basically are brand new every race. Wow. We can't take a chance for one thing to go wrong. So the, we, we prep and prep and, you know, the transmission, the rear end, the axles, the brakes, the wheel bearings, the, the engine, radiators are pressure tested. I mean, every single item on that car is brand new. Every single race. That's interesting. It's we so show up money. not with one. But we show up with two cars because you could have an accident in practice. So you can race your second car up until the, the last practice is, is over. So you can't bring your second car out until, you know, you've destroyed your first car, unfortunately. <laughs> right. right. But that, that is a lot. And, and the transporter goes back to the, the – the race shop every single week that transporter runs 24 hours a day when the race is over it goes back to the shop they unload those cars and those cars will come back through the system and we'll race that same car in about eight weeks so each team has about 10 cars yeah and it it is a tremendous amount of work um not not only for the driver the team the crew um a lot of times we don't you know, we don't get home till after midnight um, on most of the races. So it's uh, it's an intense schedule, a very intense schedule. How do you handle that pressure? And I want to go back to how you started in racing because there's some mindset stuff I want to talk about really while we're on this. How do you handle that pressure of being everything leads up to all the stuff behind the scenes from the marketing people in the office and people running the money and the owners and, and all the sponsors, like it goes down to you in that car on race day. How do you handle the pressure when you're sitting in that car and there's, you know, there's all those other guys around you that are looking to win too. And this is one of 36. You got to make something happen. There's so many people counting you. How do you handle that? It's, it, it, it's difficult. You have to get into the mindset that you, you've got to do the best job you can 
and you have to be ready for adversity. That's the biggest thing is you, you know, the race is never going to be storybook or it's never going to be by the book. So things are going to happen. The caution's going to come out at a wrong time or maybe a right time for you. Um, you know, somebody could block you in on pit road. Any so many, so many things, anything can happen. Anything can happen. So when you get in there and get buckled in for the five hour ride, you have to be ready for anything that the sport gives you. And by the way, it's 150 degrees in there. Right. And we lose about nine pounds uh, in a race. And when you get out, you are mentally, physically exhausted beyond belief. It, it takes such a toll on, on the, your body and, you know, just the, um, my, I mean, your ears ring for a day and a half. You're dehydrated for, for a day, day and a half. It's, it is a, it is very intense inside the car. A lot of people don't really realize that how hot it is and how, you know, your heart rate and how many calories you burn in, in, you know, the four hours is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Well, that's insane. Nine pounds. I mean, I mean you, obviously you're, this is a dumb question. I've just, I've never talked to anybody that drives NASCAR. So I'm going to ask you what do you do like to relieve yourself and what do you do to fuel yourself inside? Yeah. That car? So yeah, it's funny. That's a lot of people ask that question. They're like, man, yeah. you're in there for four hours. <laughs> right. So basically, basically you're already soaked head to toe. So if, if you time it right, you drink water. So in a sport like that, you have to get any sport, you have to get hydrated like the day, two days before the event. Right. And then I, I stopped drinking water basically the day uh, leading up to the race. So drink, you know, not as much as I normally would. And, you know, usually if you go, you know, you, right after the anthem, you see all the, or right before the anthem or right after, you see all the drivers run into the portage on. Oh, yeah. That, that's the last that's the last visit before for four hours and you sweat out so much water. You typically don't have to go to the bathroom. So, you know, and if you do, you just piss your pants because it's, it's, you got to go and you're already soaked head to toe anyway. But if you think about, you know, nine pounds, it's really only a gallon of water. A gallon of water weighs 8.6 pounds. Right. So we're sweating out a gallon of water in an event damn man that's amazing now did you ever did you ever get in a car unprepared or did you learn the hard way so i'm i need to i need to focus everything for this this show on um being purposeful and intentional in your life did you ever did you ever take it for granted at some point even in your early career and get in unprepared and just get your butt kicked both mentally, physically, emotionally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's been times that, um, you know, you, you weren't a hundred percent and it, it shows on the racetrack so bad 
that if if you're not prepared, that thing, you know, they'll the competition, the racetrack, they'll eat it'll eat you alive. Yeah. And I remember one time I had to drive and I was pretty sick. And that's the other thing people don't don't people don't realize or don't think about. We can't call in sick. Right. Yeah. You're done. There, there there's there's no one else that's going to do it. You know, you're you're the driver, you're getting paid millions of dollars, there's a sponsor, and the race is on Sunday, bud. You're you're racing. So it's not you're not gonna take the day off. Right. So you're driving no matter what. And I I had to drive in Atlanta and I'll tell you what, I, I did not think that I was going to make it before I got in the car. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to make this race. And thank goodness that I, after I got hot, my heart rate came up and, you know, I kind of got into a state that I, I've, after about an hour, I felt like, okay, I'm going to be all right. You know, I'm going to make this whole race. But before that, I did not think I was going to make it. <laughs> so there, there's times that I've been unprepared. There's times I've been sick. And, uh, I've just been able to, you know, trudge forward and learn from that experience and then be better prepared next time. So in terms of your, your prep, I mean, even, even in your, like, I want to take you back for a second, if you're cool with that to, uh, to the, to the early on. So like, how did you start racing and what did that look like? How old were you? And then how did it? How did it? How did it get to become something that was very serious for you? And you knew that that you were going to take this thing to a certain point. Maybe not to NASCAR, but to a certain point, higher level than the guys who were just kind of racing because they liked it or they wanted to just do something on the weekends with their with their kid. Like you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So I started out. Uh, I started out racing. So if I go way back, my dad grew up Southern California, Southern California car guy, loved cars, had this uh, flat bottom boat with the 427 Ford side <laughs> oiler in it. Nice. So we moved to Washington and, um, you know, I'm sitting on the side of the boat, helping my dad work on the engine, taking the valve cover off. So I, I was, my father, you know, got me interested in cars at a very young age. And so I started working. He he had they had a small steel fab business across the street, about a four blocks away, was this uh, automotive machines shop that my my dad was friends with the guy. Well, I worked there and tore apart engines and did did all kinds of stuff. Well, he had oval track cars, hmm. and I I was into. You know, I think I was getting ready to put my first car together. My brother's two years older than me, and he had uh, bought a, you know, early Nova with a small block Chevy in it. And, you know, there were street races down at Alcoa on Friday and Saturday night. And I was I was all hook, line, and sinker all about cars. Yeah. And so one, one evening, my dad was like, uh, hey, do you want to go to Portland Speedway and watch the oval track? watch the cars race and i'm like sure i'd love to so we went to portland speedway on a friday night they raced every friday night local short track it's they have a quarter mile and a half mile paved and that was it for me 
I'm sitting there looking through the chain link fence, watching the bomber cars run, watch the street stocks run, watch the limited sportsmen, watch the late model sportsman cars run. And when we left there, we never stopped talking about it till we bought a street stock car to put a roll cage in. Nice. I mean, I was like all about it. And I had a lot of success early on and learned a lot about it. And I actually went and ran a few tour races, Northwest tour races. I rented the, we rented the guy's car that I worked for. Um, so I, that's how I got started. And then I, I loved it so much that I started a business when I was like 18, I was working for my parents and doing steel fab work and whatnot. So actually, if I go back, I built a street stock car. We, we built this car, went to a racing. Then I came back. We couldn't afford that. So I built another uh, street stock car on my own. And I showed up at the racetrack on Friday night about mid season qualified in the trophy dash, won the trophy dash. And people are like, who is this guy? Who's this kid? Right. Who never heard of him before. So people come over, start looking at my car, and it's like I'm meticulous about the way I fabricate and the way I build stuff. And people are like, who built this car? And I'm like, I did. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, I, I built it. Who did the roll cage? I said, I built the roll cage. And about five people asked me if I would build them a roll cage or build them a car. And, you know, I've always had that entrepreneurial spirit, spirit like my parents instilled in me. And so right away, I was like, look, this is something I love to do. I love to weld and fabricate. And if I could work on race cars or build roll cages, if somebody can pay me enough money to do it, and that can be my job, I'm going to be the happiest guy in the world. Yeah. And, and so that's what I started doing. I, I, all my eggs in one basket, I bought. $10,000 worth of parts from one of the, the large suppliers, Coleman machine that sells all the track supplies. And I started building roll cages and selling, selling parts and, and racing myself. And that's, that's what I started doing when I was 19. I love that. And then it just progressed and progressed and progressed. And then you just, that fire that burned inside of you, you just couldn't let it go. Like it just kept getting bigger. And you needed more and more, right? Yeah, I just, yeah, I just wanted to be the, I just wanted to be the best. I wanted to have the best cars. I wanted to have the best, uh, I wanted to build the best stuff. I wanted to, you know, race on Friday night and win race to the customers. And then there was a customer and owner that had a falling out or a driver. And so then I drove that guy's car. I got in his car and went and we won two or three races four races the next season we got serious about it and ran both racetracks one in portland and one in tri-cities which is about four hours away and we ended up winning the championship at both racetracks that season that's awesome and you know just kind of kept progressing from there then then the tucson winter heat series came around which is uh during the winter they ran three races in tucson arizona the only place that you can race in the wintertime. Right. And that's where Dale Earnhardt hired Ron Hornaday from. And so I went down there and ran that. I saved up my money. I couldn't make it the first year. The next year we went 
and uh, I won that three race series. It's it's three races and some yeah. mini mini series. And I won that. I won two of them and finished fourth. So I had two wins and a fourth, and I'm I mean, televised. Was that strategic so, for you? Were you thinking like I, this is this is this is my you know this is like col- the college scouts are there basically, or the big league scouts are going to be there. I got to make this thing happen. Yes, I, I, that was part of it. And to to get yeah, you're exactly right to get on that big stage, right? It's televised, yep. and um, that's where I met Benny Parsons and uh, uh, Bob Jenkins that did the uh, TV. They did the ESPN two commentary. And so I ran that series two years in a row, became pretty good friends with Benny Parsons. And I, I said, Hey, how can I get an opportunity in the, in the truck series? Cause the truck series was kind of starting out. Yeah. It was new. Yeah. And, uh, and he, he, he really liked me. You know, he knew that I'd build all my own cars. He knew I was 22 years old and, um, I, I came to Tucson, Arizona with my dually truck and trailer and like 13 of the cars out of 70 cars that tried to make the race, 13 of those cars I built. Oh, wow. That's cool. And I ended up winning the race. And so he's like, this kid's talented. He, he can build race cars. He can obviously drive. And we, we became friends and he, um, he said, well, Greg, I'll tell you what, I'll pass your name around and talk to some guys and whatever else. And I don't know if you know how the story goes, but, but he did exactly that. Benny Parsons was like larger in life person. He, when he walked through the garage, you knew it, you could hear his voice and he was always smiling and would talk to anyone. And he was passing through the garage and found Jack Roush and Jack's, they got to BSing about whatever. And, and he said, Tommy Kendall, turned me down for coming to moving back here and driving the third truck. And he said, Hey, don't forget about that kid. I told you about in Washington. He'll do you a good job. And that was it. Nice. Jack Roush called me, called me and hired me. Just on the spot. His word, no test on the spot. Dude, that's insane. What was, what was it like? Like, how did you learn how to drive that? Well, I mean, is, is it just natural? Is it, is it, did you practice? Did you like, I actually want to know what your process is, even into the big leagues. What's that process that you went through, you know, maybe a week before a race or the day before or the morning before a race? Like, are, are you doing vision exercises? Are you meditating? Are you just winging it? Natural talent? Like what, what's, what's that look like for you? What's that process look like? I mean, I, I'm going to say kind of winging it, but <laughs> I believe there's there's some bit of natural talent, of course, in, in all the drivers, and you know I was just uber focused on having being as best prepared as I could be, you know, ha- having the best and w- working to the best of my skill level. Sure. To have when I show up, to have my car as good as I can get it. Yeah, to, to compete, and obviously when I started in the in the truck series and and there, I had less to do with that. Still a big influence. Like when on you the were team because I knew so long. 
when you were when you were driving and you had a crew chief and you had a crew working on your truck, were you still doing anything with dialing it in? I mean, obviously that's is it sort of your responsibility? I'm just I just want to know how hands on were you because you were used to building your own your own machines. Yeah, I'm pretty hands on, and and even you know trucks Xfinity and then into the Cup Series. Right. There were no computers like there are today and no simulation because I built driving it and what the changes did. I could drive the car and say, no, it needs more right rear spring. I feel like it needs more right rear. We come back, we put right rear spring in it. We go out, try that. That didn't work. Come back. Okay. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And so I was able to work together with the crew chief and the team to, to, be able to feel not only what the change did, but understand it. And so then when I get that feeling at a different racetrack, I can say, hey, remember when we changed the shock valving on the right rear shock when it was a little bit loose in, when I turn off of the wall for the down into the corner, it wanted to, you know, whatever it did. Yeah. That's what it feels like. That shock valving, let's change that shock valving again. You know, so those were the things that I possessed that that helped me get to the cup level and almost win a championship at the cup level was part of that just that sensory system being able to do that. And it's a different group of of racers now because the computer simulation, they have the, the track surface simulated, they have the vehicle simulation they can determine the proper shock valving and springs and sway bars. They can do about 90% of that now at the shop before they go to the racetrack. And before when Dale Earnhardt raced and Rusty Wallace and, and myself and Matt Kenseth and Carl Edwards, that stuff really didn't exist. It started coming in at the end Yeah, and the, and the teams that that had the good simulation and figured it out early on, we were a team that didn't embrace it in the beginning. We were a team that said, let's wait and see if these guys get it figured out, and then we will. Well, Huge investment. Then it's, like being, then it's like being behind three generations of an iPhone <laughs> right. and trying to, to keep up, trying to keep up with the guy that has the new one, whether it be – on an app or, or anything else. So when you get behind in technology, like what, what our race team did, there's no overcoming it because you, you'd be there for a year trying to figure out one racetrack and you only have two hours of practice before qualifying. That's crazy. So that, that's, you know, that was our downturn at the same time we had all that success because of some of those things that we were able to do, it was also our demise because we had, we were so successful at figuring it out without the computer simulation. When that stuff came in, we were slow to embrace it. So as you became more popular in the sport and, you know, the fans started recognizing you more, there's gotta be an ego piece that starts to love that. Like, how did you keep your, 
how did you keep your ego in check? Or maybe you didn't, but how did you keep your ego in check and not run crazy now that you're a, you know, in the NASCAR world, in the racing world for that matter, you're a household name. You know, I, I, I mean, I knew you since the time I was probably 15 years old. And like, how did you keep yourself in check and not go nuts? You know, I, I think coming from, uh, you know, growing up, and, and having to pave your own way and work hard and what my parents taught me kind of kept me grounded, if you will. Now, I'm not going to say I didn't have <laughs> blow a bunch of money and have a lot of fun. Of course. But at the same time, I saw how other people treated people. And I'm not going to name names. Sure. But I recognize that I don't want to be like that. Interesting. I don't want to lose focus of, you know, where I came from and what I did. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to treat people, you know, and stay grounded as best possible. Right. Yeah. It's a different category when you're flying on a jet. If it's more than 45 minute drive, you're flying on a helicopter, you know, you've got to go do appearances. You got to have security guards to get into the, table to sit down and sign autographs so so it is different yeah but at the same time at the same time it, you know it's a it, and all those fans all those folks are are kind of paying your way exactly because they're in turn supporting that sponsor and and i got that because i was a business guy when i was 19 to you know 23 years old so I understood what the meaning of the sponsor was. And so right. I had great relationships with my sponsors and I, I had long-term sponsors because I got the connection between, you know, Granger was my sponsor, Granger Industrial Supply and the customer. Yeah. I knew the guy that used the ladder. I knew the guy that used the skill saw. I knew the guy that used the, the tool set. And then I was fortunate enough to be, uh, associated with 3M, which again, kind of right up my alley. And I, I was able to relate to those customers because I did so many things and was hands-on and built so much stuff myself. And that connection when, when you're at trade shows and when you're at um, events, you know, that, that really, really got me a long ways being able to connect with those people. So staying authentic and, and really knowing yourself was, was it, it sounds like to me, was a huge piece for you staying uh, somewhat grounded and saying, you know, we all, I think we all in some sort of success that we find, we'll, we'll let ourselves go a little bit just to test the rope and to see what will hold. But it sounds like you, you knew what was important and you had your priorities in line. Did racing, did, did driving ever stop being fun for you or did, did it, did it, um, did it ever feel like a job or was, was racing always just fun for you? No, it was, it's pretty, it was pretty much always fun. It was more frustrating than I would say, um, you know, every job is frustrating, right? Sure. sure. So at the, you know, because you want to be the best, I guess I should elaborate on, when I say every job's frustrating, it's frustrating when it doesn't go the way you want it to. Yeah. Then, yeah. then, then it's frustrating no matter what you do. So the, the last, you know, well, I guess anytime you don't win, you're, <laughs> you're 
frustrated, right? Because you, right. you want to win every single race. That's the goal. Um, but the last three or four years were very frustrating because we we knew what our problems were, and and we just weren't getting to the root cause or the root of the problem. And and my belief was that some of the management and some of the engineers, some of the folks felt like we weren't as far off as we were. And I don't, you know, that frustrated me more than anything, because if, if there's an issue or there's a problem, let's work together and put our heart sweat and tears into whatever we have to do to make this work, to make it competitive. If we have to swallow our pride and go ask our neighbor for help, go try and create some kind of competition alliance where we can figure out what they're doing because they're winning races in the same brand vehicle and we're not, and we have the same engine or, you know, it comes out of the same shop. So we know that's not it. Right. So there's only one thing left and that's the car. And so I got very, very frustrated, but I was a loyal person and I, I did not jump ship like my teammates did and and go drive better equipment and have you know some more success i i stayed the course and you know looking back wish that i would have wished that maybe i'd have made a change before the end of my career and went and and drove other because i had opportunities all the time right i was so blessed to, to have other teams um you know offer me offer me positions and I just got to the point where um, I was I wasn't having fun, and because I knew showing up to the to the race, I knew we weren't going to win. And Did I that, said, that "I'm not going to drive." That I I said in early on, I said, "I'm not going to drive anymore." When I know my my stuff, and I figured it would be me, not the vehicle. When I know I have no chance at winning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step away because I'm not here just to, for a paycheck. Right. I'm not here just for the glamour and the glory. I, I'm here to win races and be competitive, and you're not going to win everyone. Of course. And guys go two, three years without winning. But we got to the point the last three years, realistically, we had no chance at winning races except for restrictor plate where that's sort of a crapshoot. We, we just weren't, you know, unless we want a few mileage race or something like that, we yeah. just um, fell behind where we weren't competitive enough uh, to win. Would you say that's one of your biggest regrets or, or, or like, I, I want to know what one of your biggest failures were and how you overcame it. And, and if it was that, like, was that something that you still regret to this day or did you get clear of it? No, I think that's it. Um, staying, you know, I, so I don't, I certainly don't want to talk bad about the, the guy that gave me the opportunity and, sure. and I had the career I had, but in sports, a lot of guys trade teams throughout their career, at least at some point, once or sometimes twice, and, and maybe even go back. Uh, and, and I just, it was comfortable. I knew everybody. And I feel like I failed myself by not jump taking the risk getting out there because I do take risks 
in business all the time. Yeah. I, I, I'm a, I am a risk taking person because I feel like that's the only way that you can to get ahead of course is, is to take risks. And I just didn't when it came to, to my career and my job and fans, I just felt, I just stayed the course and I, that's one regret I have. I wish I'd have went and drove uh, when I had the opportunity to go drive for Gibbs or when I had the opportunity to go drive for Childress or those other, other teams that were making those offers and opportunities. It's interesting stuff. What, what about your, um, like, what about your, I kind of talked about it earlier, your rituals. Do you have something that you do to continue? I mean, obviously you're, you're not racing at the capacity you used to. Do you have something that you do on a daily basis to uh, continue your, your, your self or personal development? Like, are you reading books? Are you listening to, besides my podcast, are you listening to other podcasts? Are you going to events? I mean, how do you grow yourself to make sure that, that Greg Biffle is the best version of himself every single day? Well, so I think it's, I think it's, you know, it comes back to uh, my parents. I watched my parents work very hard and I tried when I first retired to kind of kick back a little bit, you know, spend some time on my boat work, you know, mess around on the lake and have fun with your friends and do all that. And that lasted for a little while, but then it was like, it's time to get back to work. Yeah. And my problem is, is I work so much. I work too hard and I recognize it, but I enjoy it. It's what drives me is, is, you know, being successful and I have a few businesses that I work at. One is a is a um, mining company. I have a uh, River Rock mine in Virginia, and you know it, it's. I want the operation to run like a Swiss watch. Yeah. So I'm flawless. putting in a different crusher. I'm putting in different hopper. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm I'm doing all this stuff, and we're. I'm also heavy in the off road. Always have been. Um, the side-by-side or UTVs, whatever people are used to calling them, Polaris Razors. So I've been building those for about 10 years now. And we build some really, really trick um, razors. We have this engine swap kit uh, that that's available. We've sent probably eight cars to Dubai. Nice. Um, we We run this Sand Outlaw series. We race six races per year. But we build a lot of you know, recreational dune type cars for, for customers. And they're high end. They're, they're a work of art. They're, they're beautiful cars. And I really, I really enjoy doing that. So I'll be in my shop tinkering, you know, building stuff on the CNC machine, trying to figure out a better mousetrap. Yeah. How do, balance, kind of, how do you balance? That's you my balance? outlet. That's my, yeah, I keep I keep telling myself that once I get this done and once I get that done and once this runs perfect, Dangerous. then I'm going to step back a little bit. And, uh, you know, a year goes by, then another year goes by, and another year goes by. But I'm just – I'm not happy. Uh, I'm not happy just sitting around. And I was when I was racing. When I was racing, I, I, I could enjoy – going on a fishing trip or go do this or go do that. And, 
And now it's like, when I do those things, I feel like I'm, you know, cause I have business that's not finished yet. Right. You're and you know, it's like work. you're, you're going off and enjoying stuff and you have some unfinished business, but I will tell you been after this COVID thing, been cooped up for all this time. I went and raced at, um, Sand Mountain, Utah, and we had a great event. We won. Been building this car. I worked in this car till three thirty in the morning, probably, you know, three nights in a row, trying to get it done and ready, and then the trailer, and to go out there and win with this new car. And my customer finished second. I'm so looking forward to the next race on June, July 25th. In Oregon, I just can't wait. It's all I think about. And so I'm working really hard now trying to get caught up on, on all the stuff I have going so that when I go to Oregon, I can enjoy it. Do you ever have self-doubt or insecurity that creeps up in you? And how do you handle that? Because remember, the, the, the people that listen to, you know, it's, it's a lot of women that listen to this, this show as well, even though it's a men's development and transformation show. Like, how do you how do you handle that? I mean, you have to, you're human. You have doubt and, and insecurity that creep up. What do you do to combat that? You know, I do. Um, because I'm, I'm, you know, I just have a high school education. Right. And so I, I, mean, I don't have a business school, but I, I run a couple businesses and, you know, own some commercial real estate. And I want to, I, I question myself sometimes whether I'm making the right decision or not. Sure. And I'll, I'll, I'll not make a decision and I'll pay attention and watch and I'll say, should I have done that or shouldn't I have done that? And it turns out I, my gut was right. I should have done that. And now I, now I have to go do it, but I'm a month or two behind. Yeah. So, but so yes, I do have a lot of indecision, a lot of doubts, but I, I just, I try and stay level-headed, try not to make, you know, the wrong business decision. And, uh, and some of this is trial and error. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in it by myself. I don't have a, somebody looking over my shoulder saying, no, no, you shouldn't do that. Well, I get to do it wrong the first time. <laughs> and then, then I have to go back and, and do it right the second time. And that's part of life. Of course. Is, I tell you, when I was driving a race car, I told young drivers or whatever that, that would come to me and ask me, I said, look, you can learn from someone else's mistake or you can make the mistake yourself. There's two ways to learn in life. Now, when you're walking down the street and you see a guy slip and fall on the ice, well, you, you can either do it too and then know that the, it's slick or you can say, wow, I'm not going to do that. You know, you see, I see a guy in front of me, I'm racing him and I see him get up in the gray and the thing spins out and backs in the fence. I'm like, Oh shoot. <laughs> right. I, I better, I better not get that close to that. It's a little bit slick up there. That guy just wrecked. Right. And so you, you learn from we, we learn from making mistakes. Unfortunately, that's how we learn. Or sometimes we get away with, almost made a mistake yeah like a lucky like, break. oh gosh i'm not yeah better i'm not gonna do that again <laughs> or you watch and learn if you have to watch and learn what other people are doing and and maybe maybe they didn't necessarily make a mistake but maybe 
you figure out a way to do it better than they're doing it. And that's, that's what a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of companies do Yeah, is they're like, that's a great idea, but why didn't they do it like this? That, that makes more sense and more people could use it. So those are, that's how a lot of inventions, a lot of, a lot of things are made today. And I'm like that. I pay attention and, and try and understand. And I, I listen to what everybody says and, and try and make my best educated decision from that. But you know, I'm not I, always right, certainly. I mean, Yeah, you know? you're never going to be, right? You, you can't be. And, you know, it's funny that you said that because yeah. my, my dad used to say that to me all the time. He would say, son, listen, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be a young adult or you're an adult. And, look, you can learn from your mistakes or mine. Mine cost you a lot less. Just, just remember that. You, I'm, I'm fine with you doing whatever, but you're going to bail yourself out and you're going you're gonna to pick yourself up. I'm here to support you. But it's your mistakes or mine. Mine are cheaper. And I, I love that you say that because I, I, I think that's a great lesson to teach a kid. It's a great lesson to teach a kid because it allows them to not worry or be fearful as much of a mistake. I, I remember my dad, we had a, a, a Z06, uh, 2006, when the C6 first came out. And my, I said, I'm going to go to the beach in the Corvette. My dad said, cool, just be careful. There's a lot of cops out there. Your mistakes are mine. Mine are cheaper. I pull out of the driveway and no joke and a hundred feet down the road, you know, of course I cracked open the throttle on this car. Bam. Got busted by a cop. Yeah. <laughs> I walk back in and I'm like, um, all right, you know what? Today's the day that I'm actually going to start really listening to you and know that you're not just trying to annoy me or bother me or, you know, stop me from doing something. That's right. <laughs> It's so interesting. I mean, it, it is right. They, it's, it, they just know. And, you know, you can't, and it, and there's a point where young people finally decide that everything people are telling me is pretty much true to, right. to some degree, you know? And, you know, they're, it, and it takes, it's hard. <laughs> Those are, they're hard lessons to learn. Sure. Sure. They uh, trust me. They they are. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting on how we learn things in life and how we we build upon them. And um, you know, in racing, what we did a lot was had to learn that lesson again over and over, and that gets costly because you know you'll drag the sway bar off and the drug the heim in half when you get a flat tire yeah and then now you're now you're now you just didn't have a flat tire now you got the sway bars unhooked so you got a real problem and you know then we fix it we put a rub bar on it and we're changing sway bar arms we're doing stuff two years later we get a flat tire rub drags the heim in half and we're all standing there looking at each other like how did that happen <laughs> you know you know, it took us basically it takes you out of the race instead of yeah. getting a flat, put a new tire on and go again. We're like, didn't we do this three years ago? So that's so funny, man. We got to yeah, so learning that mistake from your mistakes, but learning twice. Do you ever, so I, we got to wrap up here. Like I've got like two more questions. One is how do you keep track of the mistakes you make? Do you journal anything? Do you write stuff down or you just, you just have a mental note that says, okay, check, won't do that again. And then the last, the last question is, I want to know what kind of toys you have. Well, I don't know how much time we have left for the interview. I got like, we got like five minutes. <laughs> uh, 
because <laughs> that can take a while. Uh, you know what? As you age, your memory is not quite as crisp as it used to be. Right. right. And I had a memory like an elephant. And I will tell you, unfortunately, I've got to learn some of those. Uh, I've got to learn some of those mistakes uh, over again because <laughs> I don't quite remember. And I'm I should journal them. You should, but yeah. I don't. I just try and use my memory and and be a better. But I catch myself a lot of times being so sure of myself how I did it last time. I know for a fact, and then I actually see it and I go, "Oh man, I didn't do it that way, and I don't remember doing it that way." So I've got to be more diligent about that. Um, but toys, I have, I, I enjoy things. Unfortunately. And <laughs> you still have, that I yacht? have probably more. I, I still have a, I still have a, uh, I still have a yacht. Is the checker flag I'm going to the Bahamas in about, yeah, I'm going okay. to the Bahamas in about three weeks on. Nice. Um, I don't, I sold all my airplanes and, and my helicopter. I do have the itch all the time. It was out of everything I've had. The helicopter was probably the most, enjoyable because i flew it myself and yeah. you know it's so peaceful to be able to go wherever you want to go i love flying and man. i use it for work yeah i use it for work mostly but i did get the opportunity like when i was on my way to work i'd have to pinch myself you know on my way to the racetrack or whatever that i'm getting to do this and it's it's you know beautiful day and those things so um, I've got a lot of cars, uh, some collector cars, different stuff. I have the new Ford GT, nice. which is a really badass car. Um, I've got a few boats on the lake. I enjoy surfing. And uh, I've got a shop in Glamis with all my off-road cars. And that's sort of my second passion. Is, oh, in California? Is, um, is off-roading. Yeah, in Glamis, California. Yeah, it's awesome. So that's, that. that's I, you know, I do some RC planes. I fly uh, some electric uh, remote control planes. Just nothing too trick or fancy, but I just enjoy uh, flying the kind of the basic stuff. It's uh, it's fun because when you crash them and they're three hundred dollars, <laughs> it's like it stings. But you're <laughs> you know you could go get another one. But so I I kind of stick to stick to that. And, uh, you know, I love animals. I, I, we have an animal shelter, um, that a rescue program that we built in Mooresville. It's called, uh, Lake Norman humane. And we built a shelter there. We raised money for about six years and got our facility up and running about, uh, I think it's been almost a year now. Nice. And, uh, re really proud of that. We, we rescue a lot of, a lot of, uh, dogs and cats. That's awesome. And, uh, I, I love that you do that. Those are, yeah. Love I love to that. fish. I don't don't get to fish as much as uh, I'd like to, but I keep telling myself I'm going to here soon. <laughs> like you said earlier, when I get this done, I'll go do that. That's right. <laughs> That's what I keep telling myself. I'm arguing with myself, though. Well, look, man, this has been a uh, – We've been talking for an hour. I could talk to you for another three hours, and, and hopefully one of these days we'll meet when I'm down in, uh, in Lake Norman. But, man, this has been a, this has been yeah, a real absolutely. pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. 
absolute pleasure. I'm so grateful for you coming on, taking an hour to spend with us to talk about your story and just you as a person to our audience. I know they're going to get a lot out of it. So, um, Greg, it's a pleasure, man. No, for, for everybody, everybody listening, uh, where can they find out more stuff about you? And I know you got the sand outlaw series coming up on July 25th in, in Winchester Bay, Oregon. Um, where can they find out more about you? Is it Instagram? Is it website? Yeah. So Instagram, um, and Twitter, G I do a lot of, a lot of stuff on social media and you know, you can follow the sand outlaw series and, and pace off road is our, um, is our little off road business that, that we do all the side by side. So if you Google or YouTube pace off road, there's, um, in the sand outlaw series, there's a lot of stuff on there from, from our off roading and, uh, UTV racing. And you'll see the lemons, you know, races oh, yeah, and lemons. that kind of stuff there as well. Well, look, man, this has been a, this has been an absolute pleasure. I, um, I'm so grateful for you coming on. I know the fans are the, 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 your fans. And then the, the listeners of this show, I know everybody's going to just love this interview. So dude, thanks so much for being on here. Greg Biffle been a, been an absolute pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Appreciate it. My pleasure, man. And for everybody who's listening, thank you so much for tuning in and downloading and, and rating and reviewing the podcast. And if you, if you want to find out more about Greg, we're going to have everything up uh, to find Greg, all his social stuff. It'll be in the show notes and it'll be on manonpurposepodcast.com. As always, thanks for listening. And you've got a choice. Choose to be on purpose. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks again for listening to the Men on Purpose podcast, where our mission is to educate, elevate, and activate every man to truly live their best, most fulfilling life possible. To find out more about the podcast, our guests, or becoming a man on purpose, visit menonpurposepodcast.com and choose your most purposeful path forward.